the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, and I'm on AM860, theanswer.com. That's AM860, the answer, and you can reach me worldwide on your computer. Just Google AM860, the answer.com. That's AM860, the answer.com. And put on your headphones or turn on your computer speakers. And you got me 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time. We're also on the AM radio, as the as the letters indicate. And we're also an iHeart station. So if you're on your mobile phone, your smartphone, you can catch me anywhere. Oh, boy. I know everybody's just dying to hear from me. So here I am. Well, last week, Ian from, I think he was from Clearwater, had raised some questions about the southern states' right to secede from the Union in 1860-61. And the Declaration of Independence, which said that basically people should have the freedom to make their own choices about their life and their liberty and their pursuit of happiness. And so I took a little closer look at this. Uh, the issue of slavery had been in contention since before the Civil War. I'm sorry, before the Revolutionary War in the 1750s and 60s. And with the invention of the cotton gin in the, 18, in the 19th century, uh, it became an even bigger deal because more cotton could be processed quicker. The cotton gin would get the seeds out of the cotton. Prior to that, it was a it was a laborious job where you had to pick the seeds out of the cotton. And if you've ever seen raw cotton, it's not easy to pick it out. So the cotton gin made it possible for southern plantations to produce more cotton and sell that on the world market. So this idea of slavery and abolition of slavery, which had been a movement in Great Britain prior to our uh, becoming an independent nation, had spilled over, of course, into the United States or the American colonies and elsewhere in the world, all over the British Empire. And there were, I believe, about 50 signers of the Declaration of Independence, most of whom were opposed to slavery. Now, there were two deists in the crowd. Those were people who believed that there was a God but 
didn't have any real idea about how this God manifested itself, more of an abstraction, and that was Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. The rest of the folks were very much Christians and very much believed in the teachings of Jesus Christ, for good or for bad. The majority were Anglicans, Episcopalians, we call them in the United States now. There were 88 founding fathers who were Episcopal Anglicans, followed by Presbyterians and Congregationalists. We don't hear much about the Congregationalists anymore because they've merged with other groups. There were seven Quakers, there were Dutch Reform, Lutherans, or even a few Catholics that snuck into the Founding Fathers list of, of uh, signers. Huguenots, Unitarians, Methodists, and one Calvinist. So the Founding Fathers, including the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and, and of course our own uh, Constitution, there were about 204 people. I was surprised that Catholics had snuck in there. At that time, prior to the American Revolution, Catholics and Jews, although in small numbers in the United States, 20,000 Catholics, 2,000 Jews, they were largely prohibited from voting and holding office because of their religious beliefs. You say, well, why is that? Well, I think that Judaism was still considered and still is considered by some people to be the religion that killed Jesus. And so there were obviously feelings, and it was also a very cloistered community, and it just wasn't in the mainstream. Now, the Catholics, it's more understandable, and this is the basis of a big part of the, of the Civil War that occurred in the 1860s in the United States. The Catholics were feared because most of the Protestants had this idea that the Pope, if given a chance in the Catholic Church, would come back into Great Britain or the colonies and somehow trick them into or force them into being Catholics once again. And you have to remember that in the 1640s and 1650s, there was a tr tremendous civil war in England that had divided the country. And there was also an attempt to blow up Parliament by Catholic uh, terrorists. And this war was fought between the crown, the king, who was a Catholic, and parliament, which was largely uh, Congregationalist and uh, Puritans under Oliver Cromwell. And so this had spilled over into the Americas, and part of the reason people came to America was to get away from the religious wars in Europe, and especially in England. So all this weighed heavy on their minds, and so early on they were skeptical of allowing Catholics to have any power. Understandable. Now that continued on, although it gradually died in the 19th century, but it did continue on. But before the Civil War, almost every white male who was a citizen could vote and hold office. And that was a big step forward. And the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence had both made that possible. Ian's on the phone. Ian, what you got? Yeah, I want to thank you for taking up that question I posed last weekend. And I, I really want to get to the reason why I brought it up. I'm not a neo-Confederate or a Confederate sympathizer. What I worry is, you know, here's the question. 
Is the Declaration of Independence a one-off? In other words, are we going to be allowed only to do that once against Britain? I'm, I don't see. To me, I believe that Declaration of Independence is operative. I know I'm in the minority because most people think it's null and void. How would a government react today, any government, not just Trump or Obama, but the government in general, react if the people made and acted on the Declaration of Independence? So it really wasn't a question about the Southern Confederacy. My, my larger question is, is it a one-off? Is, it, is that null and void now? Because I don't believe it is. Uh, the Constitution is certainly not null and void, and and but the the dogfight is still going on. You know the the causes of the Civil War are still being fought today. Sectionalism, imbalance of political power, and we see this today. We see that the Democrats want more immigrants to come in. They're generally going to be poor. They're generally going to be uh, needier when they first get here, and they're generally going to be more likely to vote with the liberal Democrats. So they want to build their power base. We don't want that on the conservative side because not only do we feel it erodes the the system, as we see with uh, the, these Mexican aliens, illegals who are committing these terrible crimes, but also because of the effect it would have on the balance of power in the United States between conservatives and liberals. Uh, the spread of slavery in the West was a big deal back in the 19th century and the growth of the abolitionist movement. But these are not just the only causes of the Civil War. The Civil War was fought over sectionalism. It was fought over tariffs. It was fought over the right to do exactly what Ian is saying, which is to make the decision that you no longer want to be part of this union or to say that the union doesn't have this power. And in the 1820s and 30s, South Carolina in response to what they considered to be an oppressive tariff, tariff being a tax that was levied on goods that were imported from largely from Europe, and it was a 20-plus percent tax. It was a huge tax. It was there, and it was there to protect the nascent American industries, the majority of which were in the north. Well, guess who was the major exporter of the country? It was the south. It was the agricultural base of the United States. And that still is one of our biggest exports, are agricultural products. So this was a problem for South Carolina and the southern states. And they said, you know what? We don't think this is constitutional. We don't think it's fair. We think this is just sectionalism and regionalism that the North's trying to step on the South. Because if we sell our products in Europe and they add another 10 or 20 percent tax onto it, we can't be competitive because Egypt's growing cotton. Turkey's growing tobacco, and so it became uh, a big point. And Andrew Jackson, when the people of South Carolina voted to secede from the Union or threatened to secede from the Union, Andrew Jackson said he'd personally go down there and hang anybody who seceded, including his vice president, John Calhoun, who was from South Carolina. And he even sent the Navy down to Charleston and South Carolina to tell them you can't do that. Ian, I'm going to let you go, buddy, because um, it's kind of breaking into my... Uh, but thanks for calling, and please keep listening, and, and let us know your thoughts in the future, okay? Yep, thank you. Thank you. Uh, the uh, I'm sorry about that. There was some static that was coming from uh, having too many people on the airway here. So these things came into play, and they continue to be bones of contention.
who should have the right to vote? Who should be a citizen? You know, Dred Scott was moved from a slave state to a free state, and the free states, most of the northern states, had enacted legislation which said slavery's outlawed here. And the South said, well, how can you do that? The Constitution allows it, and you're telling us that we can't nullify parts of what the Congress does, but the North can. Uh, how does that work? How does it work that you can impose an indirect tax on us that you don't have to pay or you don't suffer for, but we do, and then tell us that if we move to a free state with a slave that we can't have that person as a slave anymore because I paid for them, they're bought. And the morality of that notwithstanding, there's a legality that was argued there, and the Supreme Court said, well, Dred Scott's he's not a citizen. He's, not con he's considered property, so he can't sue for his freedom, even if he's in a free state. And this, of course, just really polarized the country along with uh, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry and uh, Uncle Tom's cabin, cabin, the booklet written by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And, and listen, these things are still being debated today. And so the question is, does the Constitution give the federal government that absolute power over us? No. No, it doesn't. And that's one of the main reasons that people came to the Americas to escape that kind of uh, federalistic uh, imposition of, of religion and policies and taxes on them without their feeling that they had any input or any say into it. And remember that the Puritans were, and the separatists that, that had left England and gone to the Netherlands and then to Plymouth Rock, that they had been killed. They had been killed by Queen Elizabeth, and they were being imprisoned by the Stuarts when they came in. So the same thing was happening in the United States, and there was a lot of fear about who would be in control and would I have civil rights, would I have civil liberties? Well, of course, the Declaration of Independence says all men, right? So naturally, the abolitionists seized onto that, and if you were a slave— You'd seize on to it, too. You wouldn't be too happy about being somebody, somebody else's property. And I think that we can see this echoed in the policy towards the illegal Mexican immigrants who are coming here as cheap labor, as our new form of slavery, as it would appear to be in the minds of the liberals. Forget that there was free choice involved. I mean, it's not like the 19th century where people were snatched from sub-Saharan Africa, taken to the West Indies or to the United States and sold as slaves. These are people who came into the United States illegally for the sole purpose of making some money. And, of course, that's not going to sit well with a large portion of the population in the United States who says, well, wait a minute. First of all, they're not legal. Secondly, how can they hold a job? You've got to have a Social Security number. You've got to have certain papers. You have to be, you know, green card or landed alien immigrant, somebody who is legally recognized for a number of reasons, for taxation, for head counts by the Census Bureau and the Department of Labor, for the right to vote or not vote, 
and we even have seen people who were not citizens and had no right to vote getting into the ballot box and voting. So it is a big problem, and it continues to be a problem. And all the things that we fought the Civil War over are still the things that we're fighting over today. The nullification crisis in 1832, Congress passed this protective tax on imports, and this, people in South Carolina turned to John Calhoun, who was the vice president, for help. And they said, this is going to hurt us badly, and we're 55% of the exports of the United States come from the South. We're a big part of the economy here. So South Carolina said, if you don't get rid of this tax, we're going to secede. So President Jackson, along with Vice President Calhoun, went back to the Congress and said, you got to lower this tariff or we're going to have a civil war on our hands. Not over slavery, but over taxation, over the rights of the state to have input into the federal system. And, of course, the Congress backed down and lowered the rate on the tariff to what it had been back in the 1810 to 20 area. And so South Carolina backed down, and both sides said they won. The North got its little increase in the tax. The South said the state can't exert power and influence over the federal government. And we saw that with Obamacare. So there's nothing new here, nothing new. With Obamacare, the state said, you cannot force us to expand Medicaid just because you say we have to expand Medicaid. You can't do that. If you're going to pay for it, then that's fine. If the federal government has the money and they want to pay for it, of course, the federal government ran out of money. It didn't have the money to pay for increasing the Medicaid rolls in every state. They wanted the states to do it, and they wanted to force the states to do it. And the states sued, and it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. The states have certain rights. And the idea of a supreme federal government has been challenged repeatedly throughout our history and continues to be a major bone of contention between the left and the right. It's kind of funny how things have reversed because when the Republicans came in in the 1860s, they were the liberals. They were the left. They wanted a stronger central government. They wanted to exert their power over the states and say you can't secede from the union. And they pointed to the supremacy clause which says that anything that's not given to the states by the federal government in terms of their ability to enact legislation or carry on trade or enforce laws is the province of the federal government, and you can't leave the union. This is a marriage that you can't leave, and you can't decide for yourselves whether or not you can leave. Now, you can band together. You can fight us legally. You can fight us in the courts. You can boycott goods. You can do all kinds of things, but you can't leave the union. And I think what Ian was getting to is that do we still have the right to form committees and groups to issue declarations and to assert our independence from the federal government, whether it be by secession or by nullification, quote, quote, that we refuse to recognize this law or that law? Well, according to the Constitution and the way it's been interpreted by the courts and by the political structure, including Abraham Lincoln and the radical Republicans going forward, 
No, we don't have that right. So I think that, in a sense, Ian answered his own question. You have to remember, too, that as new territories and states were admitted to the Union, both the North and the South wanted their perspective thumbprint on that state because if all the new states coming in were free states, then the southern states would have absolutely no power. In the north, they were saying, well, if we let these states be slave states, then we're going to lose power. And the struggle continues to go on. Where do we draw the lines? Who does get to vote? How do we set this? Well, we do have a constitution, and it does define what a citizen is, at least the laws that Congress has passed under the powers given to it by the Constitution, makes that decision. You say, well, what about the state laws that said you you have to be able to vote? You have to at least have a driver's license and show proof of citizenship. You have to be able to read. Well, a number of these laws have been struck down, and then others have been upheld. And the courts go back and forth. The Supreme Court is not... God, it's not absolute. It makes mistakes, or it sees that a decision it made is not workable, and it'll back over that and undo it. Or there's a new group of justices like we see now coming in, more conservative, more strict interpretationist of the Constitution, people who believe that the erosion of the state powers is not healthy because it puts too much into the hands of of a strong federal government, and that's why we revolted against Great Britain. We did not want a strong federal government that was disinterested, that was weeks to months away telling us what to do. We were big boys and girls. We could tell ourselves what to do. We didn't need them to do that for us. We can set our own tax rates. We don't need the British to come in and tell us that we're going to tax you one or two or five percent, whatever amount it was. It was more the idea than anything. And this had carried forward from the inception of the Republic. In the 1790s, Napoleon started the World War in Europe. And so once again, Great Britain and France were at it. And in the early 1800s, we had a quasi-war with France because they were attacking our merchant ships. And the British were not only attacking our merchant ships, they were taking our sailors off. They were kidnapping our sailors and forcing them to be sailors in their navy. And so in the 18, early 1800s, 1805, 1810 era, somewhere in there, the Embargo Act was passed by Congress under Thomas Jefferson with the help of Madison, who was president after Jefferson, as I recall. And the Embargo Act said, you can't import anything from France or Great Britain. It's illegal. We're stopping it. And, they, and the government stationed ships in the harbors of, of Charleston and New York, and they said, no, you can't do it. And so Merchants and people were very upset because there were things that weren't made here or that were made here that were very expensive. And so that was a 
a great conflict between the states and the federal government and the people that were living in the states that were most affected by this. What rights do we have then? Well, we certainly have the right to go to the ballot box. We have the right to have our own radio show and espouse whatever political philosophy we want. Living proof is yours truly right here. We have the right to rebel. I mean, that's an inherent human right. But if we're going to rebel, and I don't think that that's necessary, I think we can accomplish what we want by right reason and continuing to hammer home our ideals. And I think that that's something that Ian is wondering. Do we have any power? That's ultimately the question, isn't it? What power did the South have in 1850, 1860? Congress was making one compromise after another to try to divvy up the new territories between free and slave states to try and hold the union together. And we see the federal government now trying to do the same thing to keep everybody under control and keep us from wanting to leave. And I, I think that the best way to avoid a civil war is to get out of Trump's way and let him go to work build up the economy, decrease the influence of the federal government in our day-to-day -day lives. You say, well, he's, an, he's a jackass. He's a loudmouth. I don't care. I mean, Andrew Jackson was a loudmouth and a jackass. Who cares? I don't care what the president says to the newspaper. I don't care what he says in his tweets. All I care about is, what are you doing? I want to see the action. I'm, you know, I was raised Catholic. This is a program of action, not intention. And this is tough for a lot of people to understand and accept, but uh, and in this age of instant media where you can see and hear everything almost instantaneously, I mean, it's uh, nanoseconds before a tweet from the White House is popping up in your computer. So we say, well, this is an abuse or a misuse of this. I don't think so. I think it's just part of the noise of the background, the landscape, and i just tell you, ignore it. And I would say this, too, that our rights as individuals, as citizens, as states are still here, and we still have the power to exert that. And I again go back to the Medicaid portion of the Obamacare bill, where the states banded together and said, you know what? We don't think this is constitutional, and we're going to sue you, and we're not going to do this until we get a, a hearing at the Supreme Court. And Florida was a good example of that. Our governor wisely chose not to embroil us in the Medicaid expansion. And as I've said before, the state came out of the recession in the black. And I didn't see an increase in, in mortality in Florida. Now, maybe there was, and I don't know about it, but... Being in the business, I didn't see any anybody suffering from lack of health care unless there was an intentional wish not to participate in the health care system or they were being abused or neglected or they were drunks on the street. But that's in, in every system in every part of the world. I mean, there's not much you can do if people don't come in to see you. I mean, we're here. The medical community is willing to help. And that is uh, a fact. I mean, you know, 
if you ask me if I'll give part of my week up for free care, I'll be happy to do it. I'll say yes, but nobody's asked me. I'll be happy to donate some time to see to it that everybody has at least the minimum of health care. I mean, we, we have most of that anyway. The kids get immunized. They've got the CHIPS program for them. Uh, adults, most of us who work, can get some form of minimal insurance. And I'm certainly an advocate of helping my patients who are financially strapped get necessary health care. I'll petition the CFO at the hospital. And you say, well, isn't health care more important than our sense of state rights or personal rights? Well, I would disagree with that. I'll go back to why we broke away. I'll go back to all the compromises that were made in the 19th century to try to hold the union together. I'll go back to the Supreme Court battles that have raged since we were first formed as a nation and say, look at this. A lot of this is because we do not want a too powerful central government. Yes, in times of emergencies like wars, then we want the government to step in and the Constitution already has clauses for that and allows the government to step up its powers in times of, of national crises like a war. But in peacetime, when there's no major national crisis going on, I don't want the federal government intruding into my life or into my state's functions. That's not helpful for me. All these laws and all these rules and regulations that have been laid down over the decades by the federal government, I mean, you, you can't believe what we have to go through in medicine just to get a, a, a payment from Medicare. It's, it's a lot of work. There are a lot of rules and regs that we have to meet. There's a lot of quality measures that we have to document. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to have quality measures. But remember, when this started six, eight, ten years ago, the quality measures were 20 or 30. And now the federal government says, oh, well, those aren't important. So we're down to about 10 now because in their zeal to regulate health care and to force physicians to practice, quote, quote, better medicine and take better care of people, they implemented these rules and regulations in order to get paid and then said, Oh, well, now that we've looked at this, we realize this is, this is really not necessary. Well, you know what? Doctors knew that we knew, we knew, we knew how stupid some of these regulations were. And that's what I'm talking about is that encroachment by a burdensome overbearing federal government, paternalistic, trying to, micromanage our lives and our businesses. And that's all we're really that we're talking about. That's all we're talking about. And I think this statue over in Tampa, for those of you who don't know about it, there's a Confederate war memorial and there's a big debate going on. I think at this point in time, they're going to leave it, but I don't know. I'll let Bill answer that at the break if he wants. But you know, my suggestion is, is that even if the city and county governments don't want to let that remain, we'll, we'll just, all get together and chip in some money, buy a private piece of land and move it there. But should we have to? And I think that's part of what Ian's talking about. Should we have to? Why can't we just go along with what we've got 
and let history be part of history and not try to rewrite our whole past history. It's not going to work anyway. There's too many of us that know it. When I come back, we'll talk a little bit more about this. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. President Trump doing some tweeting this morning. He says, quote, it is time to move forward and working constructively with Russia. This after his meeting with President Vladimir Putin at the G20 gathering in Germany. He also says a ceasefire in southern Syria brokered by the U.S. and Russia, quote, will save lives. He's calling for further cooperation with Moscow and straightening out the situation in Syria. Iraqi troops are celebrating driving ISIS from some of its last strongholds in Mosul, but heavy fighting is still underway. When will the city be liberated? It could be days. It could be weeks, we are told. And Congress is still trying to send President Trump the GOP's first major legislative triumph. They return from their Independence Day recess this week. First order of business to try and revive the repeal and replacement of Obamacare. This is SRN. News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. In 1967, Arab forces attempted to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Six days later, Israel had triumphed. Honor the 50-year anniversary of this historic triumph by joining Mike Gallagher and Dennis Prager for Stand with Israel, a nine-day odyssey celebrating Israel's past, present, and future. October 22nd through November 1st includes luxury accommodations and safe transportation. Stand with Israel. For information and reservations, visit standwithisraeltour.com. I'm Bill Carl. For years here at Salem Media Group, we've made it our mission to help parents across the Tampa Bay, Sarasota, Bradenton area provide a quality Christian education for their children at half off the first year's tuition. Sarasota Christian has been a great fit for our daughters. They both receive an excellent education uh, with the ability to exercise their Christian faith. Right now, when you go to ChristianTuitions.com, you'll find a wide selection of private Christian schools in your area with half off the first year's tuition. The teachers are real about their faith. You know they're praying for their kids, for other kids, for other families in the school. It's a strong faith-based Christian school. That's right. Find a great Christian school near you with half off your first year's tuition at ChristianTuitions.com. We're learning about Jesus and God and how God created the world. 
If finances are the only reason you're not sending your child to a private Christian school, go to ChristianTuitions.com today for half off your first year's tuition. ChristianTuitions.com. Today, periods of clouds and sunshine. A shower or a thunderstorm will be around mainly later in the day. High getting up to 89. Then patchy clouds through the night tonight with a low 77. Tomorrow, partial sunshine with a thunderstorm in the afternoon, then a shower or a thunderstorm in spots early in the evening, high 91. That's your Accu for the Forecast. I'm Kevin Baxter for AM860, The Answer. Your first name is King, last name is Dumb, because you still believe in everyone. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. A little bit of Farrell Williams singing his freedom song. Uh, and we're talking about states' rights and the causes of the Civil War and, and how it parallels our situation today, how we're going back through a lot of the same things that the pre-Civil War era was fighting over, talking about the uh, tariffs of 1828 and 1832 and South Carolina's nullification ordinance, which said that they disagreed and did not think the federal government had the power to impose that tax on on imports. It, uh, if you're just joining the show, the tax was on goods coming primarily from Europe, and it was a 20 or 30 percent import tax, and it was meant to protect our nascent industries that were forming, mostly in the north. And the South was still the largest exporter of goods from the United States because of cotton and tobacco and grains and so on and so forth, agricultural products. And the players were similar to today. We had a, a strong vocal president in Andrew Jackson, as we do in Donald Trump. We had a senator from Kentucky who was trying to maintain the balance. His name was Henry Clay. And we've got Mitch McConnell now. We had state-level governors saying, you can't do this to us. And we've got Governor Rick Perry in Texas, and he has been trying to get enough states together for a constitutional review and to push for some amendments to the Constitution that would better define the state's rights. We've got the threat of Protective tariffs, again, with the Trump administration, this time not to protect our nascent industries, but to protect our industries that have been damaged by cheap labor overseas, some attempt to balance things out. And so we see a lot of the same things recurring now as happened then as part of the causes of our civil war in the 1860s. It wasn't just about slavery. It wasn't just about uh, the impressment of people against their will and to service. And the Constitution says the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited it to the states, or reserved for the states respectively or for the people. 
But then you have the supremacy clause, which basically says that anything that we haven't discussed and already hashed out will be in the domain of the federal government. And you say, well, what was the purpose of that? Well, at the time, the states all had different currencies. They had different taxations on goods coming in from other states under the Articles of Confederation. And uh, there were toll gates that were not approved by another state in one state, so on and so forth. And so the, the, the Constitution said you can't do that. We're one country. There's no borders when it comes to trade within the states or between the states. I should say, and you can't make a treaty with France on your own. The treaties go through the federal government. You can't make war. That's the federal government's domain. The federal government makes war. The federal government makes treaties. The federal government decides the laws on the seas, on the open seas for American shipping. The federal government has all these responsibilities, and without that, you don't have a government. That was a problem under the Articles of Confederation. It said, yeah, we're, we're a country, but each state can pretty much do what it wants, and there was no power to tax. You say, well, that's a good thing. Why don't we just keep it within the states? I think that it might be hard to have the infrastructure that we have without some federal taxation and cooperation. Have we taken it too far? Well, a lot of us think so. We think it could be pared back and that it would be better for the country, and the president agrees with that. He, he's for decreasing our federal income tax, both personally and at a business level. And I think this is a good thing. But then there are people, even within his own group, his own cabinet, his own uh, White House aides who are saying, but the rich, the ultra-rich should be taxed at a much higher rate. And I have mixed feelings about that. We have to realize that people make their money, by and large, off of other people by buying and selling goods or services. And so it takes two to make this tango. You have to have somebody who wants a broom, and you have to have somebody who's selling a broom. The guy selling the broom, this is his occupation, and he's walking door-to-door with his brooms, and he's using gasoline and time, and so he's got to make a profit. So he buys a broom for 5 bucks, and he sells it for 10 Well, then he gets the idea how he can mass-produce and mass-distribute brooms, and all of a sudden he's making $9 off of each broom, and he's selling instead of 1000 a year, he's selling several million, and pretty soon he's a wealthy guy with much less labor, physical labor involved on his part. Well, is it fair that he has all that money? Shouldn't he share that back with us? I mean, he's taking money that's printed because there's only a certain amount in circulation, and he's taking some of that out of circulation for his own use. So the argument is how much, who, what for? All these questions come into play with taxes, and I don't have a problem with paying more income tax as long as I can see that it's being spent for things that I think are of necessity to our country, and I think most of us feel that way. Even on the left, they don't want to pay taxes. They're bigger tax cheats than anybody. 
And the reason they don't want to pay is because they don't agree with money being spent on military. Somewhere we got to make some compromises or we won't hang together as a nation and we'll certainly be much more vulnerable in the world. And it's not a nice world out there. It's a tough world. Ideas of taxation, like Ian brought up, public land policies. I mean, this Confederate memorial to the Confederate soldiers has been in Tampa for decades. And nobody said anything until recently somebody brought it up. And now every time people go about, they say, oh, yeah, I didn't even know that was a Confederate memorial. Get rid of it. That's, that's old history. Who cares? Well, there are a lot of people that do care. <laughs> and they're, guess what, American citizens. And it's been there. And it's another attempt to rewrite our history. Why do we want to do that? If we try to rewrite everything, we'll forget the lessons of the past and we'll repeat them all again. So tariffs, public land policies, a national bank. The Supreme Court ruled early on that the national bank could not be taxed. It doesn't make any sense to tax an entity that is surviving in part off of taxes. I mean, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think that those are some of the questions people have today. Is this entity getting tax money? And they shouldn't be getting it. And if you're a religious group, should you not be taxed or should you be taxed? And there's debate on both sides of that. Internal improvements in the infrastructure. Trump says he wants to spend a trillion bucks or whatever on improving our infrastructure. It's a great idea. Who gets it first? How much? Do we pay more taxes for this? Is it necessary? Well, if you have a pickup truck like I do, and there's bumps in the road, it's much less likely to do damage than if you have a little Honda Civic, like my son has, which you're not going to take the bumps as well. So for me, I'm kind of neutral. I don't care if there's potholes in some of the roads, but for a lot of people, it's a big deal. Okay, I can see that. It's an impediment to getting where you need to go and doing the things you need to do. So the infrastructure does need some improvement. How much? I don't know. I think that's something that has to be decided at multiple levels by multiple people looking at the problem. So these internal improvements are another reason that we have a federal government, but we have to keep it in check or the federal government will take all our money and spend it on internal projects we don't agree with, like a bullet train. A bullet train works well in a small, densely populated country. But it'd be hell paying for it here. It'd be difficult to make it pay. It'd be another situation where the public bus riders paying a buck and the taxpayers are paying the other two or three bucks necessary to make that ride profitable or at least break even for the city, the county, the state. If you can show me how we can make a bullet train pay for itself, then I'm all for it. If you can show me that we can pay it off over 10 or 20 or 30 years, like we do bridges when we put a toll, gate, toll booth, toll gate on it, and then after you've paid it off, you take the toll gate away, 
and hopefully it starts paying for itself and putting some money back in. And you say, yeah, but Doc, those roads that have toll gates, they're already giving money back because they're encouraging interstate commerce or intrastate commerce. Big trucks go over those roads and deliver goods. There's equipment. There's people going on vacation, and they're tourists that are going to spend money. That's a big deal for us in Florida. So all these things come into play, and we have to figure it out. Uh, it takes statisticians and mathematicians and accountants and engineers and project managers and all this. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to put an interstate road in or to build a bullet train. So that impact on our day-to-day -day lives by the federal government stepping in has to be taken into account, and we have to look at it in balance, in balance as to what we need, what we don't need, what will work and what won't work. And it's never going to be an absolute 50-50 deal. It's never going to, there's never going to be 100% agreement. The last time we had 100% agreement on anything was President Washington's first term. So that's been a while ago. That's been a while ago. And then we have to look at the extension of slavery. What are we going to do about the illegal Mexicans coming in? I mean, this is a voluntary sort of slavery, but generally they get paid less. They work harder. They're sending money out of the country back to Mexico to their families. So that's draining money from our economy. And those who are here and who have kids that are born here, do we give them amnesty? How long should it take for them to become citizens? Well, the people on the left are going to say, they're not slaves. Slavery's gone. They've been here working, just like the slaves were. Let them be citizens now. The Emancipation Proclamation needs to be expanded to include illegal aliens who have been here X number of years and have been working and keeping their noses clean. And the people on the right say, well, wait a minute, the first premise is wrong that they got here illegally. <laughs> you know, that, that's why we have a Constitution and a Congress to make and pass these laws and to implement border control, not just for the sake of saying that we're the big bad United States and we're not going to let you in unless we like you, but for economic reasons, for civil reasons, for reasons of, quote, quote, modern-day slavery to prevent it to encourage the Mexicans to fix their own system. They've got tons of natural resources. Wonderful country. Really impressed with Mexico. The times I've been there, there's just so much potential. And yet they still flounder. And if we open the gates to them and everybody comes here from northern Mexico, well, that's going to drain Mexico of productive workers, of brain power, of an economic engine that could be utilized and harnessed there. Well, let's take some industry across the border. Wait a minute. If we do that, will our native industry suffer? Isn't that once again one of the reasons that we fought the Civil War? Because there was an inequity in the economics of the North and the South and the power structure. And if industries in the Northeast start taking satellites into Mexico and increasing their bottom line because they're getting cheaper labor there, even though it's helping the Mexicans. 
it's also giving them an unfair advantage over those of us who are saying we're going to keep our businesses and our trade and as much as we can our purchasing within the United States for American goods. Same thing with China. Hey, we do the same thing. We do the same thing with the F-35, the fighter jet from, I think it's McDonnell Douglas. I can't remember who has that jet. They said, we'll sell this jet. And the government said, okay, we'll let you sell it to these 10 or 11 nations who are our friends. And the nations all said, well, listen, we want to have a piece of the action here. So we want to manufacture some of the parts. And so the United States is now in the position of saying, okay, we'll let, we'll let, uh, Poland manufactured the engine, but we're not going to let Japan manufacture anything. And the Japanese are saying, well, wait a minute, we're buying 25, 50, 100 of your, of your planes. Why don't we get to manufacture a piece of it like the other guys do? And so we're making those decisions for other countries. And they're inviting us in. And this affects the power that this company and these manufacturers have not only over the other countries like Japan, but also over you and me because it involves more than just domestic production and industry. It involves foreign production. It involves taxation. Do we tax the parts that are coming back in to the United States when we put these planes together? It's complex. You know, it's not easily solved. It takes a lot of thought, it takes a lot, and it takes compromise. And we saw that in the 19th century. We saw the, the Texas, um, the uh, Kansas-Missouri Act. We saw the Compromise of 1850. We saw a number of, of pieces of legislation that came into existence because of the desire to keep the country from tearing itself apart keeping it together and keeping regional and state-level problems and differences uh, at a simmering level. We're never going to be completely happy. Hey, that's just the way humans are. We, we're a little bit on the rambunctious side. We're a little bit angry and edgy, especially the guys. And we want to improve things. The battles are the same today as they were in 1790. You had Hamilton and Jefferson fighting each other on federal versus states' rights. Fascinating world, don't you think? I love it. So with the birth of our nation began the argument over what kind of government we should have, how much power it should have, where we should cut it off, what we would and would not allow. And to our credit, we've only had maybe 25 amendments and the first 10 or 12 were done within the first year or two of of the country. So in essence, we've had about 12 or 13 amendments to our constitution. Not bad. Apparently we can get along from time to time. (laughs) So that speaks highly of us as a people. And for Ian, I say, Yes, we have the right to band together and to make our demands known and to call for constitutional conventions to alter or amend our Constitution. But we have to be careful because it may backfire on us. Yes, we have the right to rebel. 
but we have to be strong enough to break away. You know, the South just didn't have enough of an infrastructure, even though its kill ratio was three Northerners dead for every Southerner. It still wasn't enough because the Army was were only maybe 60,000, 70,000 at their maximum, and the Army of the Potomac was a quarter of a million. So we have to think about these things. Well, it's getting close to the end of the show. I've had a good time. I don't know about you guys, but I count on you being back here next week. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Have a good weekend, guys. You too, Bill. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.